dive right into James this morning, I want to throw up a question that I want to guide what we're talking about today. And the question is this. It'll be on the screen for you if you want to write it down. Uh, if you've got a worship guy on your way in, there's a place for you to do that. But I want to start with this question right off the bat. Why? Right? Why? Have <laughs> you ever asked that question about a circumstance that you're going through? Why? Why am I going through this? And a more important question, what should I do about it? Right? We talk a lot about, and I already have today, that there are things that you go through. There's things that I go through. We all go through things. We all bring them into this place. And some of them worse than others. Some of them mundane. Some of them difficult. But at the end of the day, none of us are exempt from going through the stuff of life. Right? Scripture calls it the anxieties of life. If I was to go around and poll each of you, you could give me your anxieties of life. As we come into this text, I think there isn't a more practical question you can ask within your faith community, right? Everybody in the world is asking that question, why? And trying to answer it in a number of different ways. But for those of us that call Jesus Lord, it's important for us to ask that question within our faith community. Within the community of people that say, no, there actually are answers to the most difficult things of life. I wrote down just a few. What, what do you do with a diagnosis to cancer? What do you do with a diagnosis to another disease? What do you do when you're walking through the pain of death of someone you love? What do you do with that? What do you do when you're being bullied at school? What do you do when you're being racially profiled? What do you do when you're being abused? What do you do if you're experiencing homelessness against your will? What do you do if you're losing a job, struggling economically, or maybe even just being made fun of? You know that old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? It was a lie. Lie from the devil. It's much worse Emotionally and psychologically to your spirit and your soul and your mind. And James is writing to his faith community, right? James chapter 1 verse 1, which won't be on the screen, says this. James, a servant of God. We talked about that last week. A servant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he says this. He says, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. Those were his people. James, I told you last week, was a pastor and he cared about his people. And what he's going to write next was written to real people. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we look at this book and it's just a book. And I want you to know that a real person being led by a real spirit of God wrote this to real people who were struggling, specifically struggling economically. They were the target of some of the first abuse in our faith community. And so as you look at that, it's important because he's writing to the people he pastors and loves because they are facing trials. All of us face trials. What do we do with that? 
I want to I want to lay out even more specifically what trials they were facing. An author named Scott McKnight points out this. James is writing to a poor messianic faith community that is being oppressed by people in power. That brings it all the way down to earth, right? Do, do, have you ever seen a group of people oppressed by people in power? Yeah. Yeah, we have. It's happening all over the world today. If you turn on the news, you hear about people being oppressed by power. We understand this. Here's the struggle as we read James, though. Many of us are not being oppressed by people in power. So when we come to a book like this, it sometimes it's hard for us because we might look at this and go, my struggles don't line up with their struggles. And that's true. However, there's a reason that the Lord saw fit for this book to transcend time and to make its way through the faith community into the canon of Scripture and into your lap today. Because it's God's word to his people. And so no matter how disconnected you feel from that. I want you to insert yourself back into this story and receive this from the Holy Spirit as it was intended for its original audience and now for you. That all of us experience trials that at some point in the future, their reality may be your reality. It may be our reality, depending on how fast culture moves. But that's who James is writing to. And he wants them to know that there is a purpose in their trials, that there is wisdom available when they encounter those trials and that God can. And maybe this is what's most important for you is that God can and will relate to you in your trials. It makes a difference. It makes a difference to you today, whether or not God is some distant reality that doesn't care about you or whether he is present and accounted for and caring for you. It makes a huge difference in your decision making right now. So I want to I want to show you that today, but I want to work backwards here. I want to go to the end of our text for today. And then I want to come back to the beginning. So we're going to start in verse 13 and go through verse 17. And then I, I want to take that, which is all about who God is and who we are and the relationship that we have together and then go back to where James says in verse two, consider it great joy when you face a lot of different trials. Make sense? We're going to go to the end. And then we're going to come back and we're going to take some things out of that for when we walk through trials. But really, we have to ask ourselves who we are in the mirror of God's law and who God is in relationship to us. Because we can't just go back and say, oh, God's going to give me whatever I want and need in the middle of a trial. Right. Kind of like when you read the scriptures about prayer that say if you just or faith would say, you know, we talked a few weeks ago, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can take this mountain and throw it into the sea and it will happen. And you're like, I've never seen that happen. Because <laughs> you got to read it in context. And so I, I want to give you the context before we take the principles of walking through trials. So go to verse 13 and follow along with me here. No one. All right. So many different ultimatums in scripture. 
No one. That means there's no other options here. No one. Let no one say. Who's going going through a trial say I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Verse 16, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. And then verse 18, what we talked about last week, it's not going to be on the screen, but I want you to listen to it. It says, by his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What's happening here? What's, what is true about us and true about God? What we see is that God is not exactly like us, and that's a good thing, Right? The implication that God does not change like the shifting shadows. The implication there is that who changes like shifting shadows? We do, right? If I was, I'll be, I'll, let's, let's be nicer. If you were to follow me around this week, you would find out, it's going to shock some of you, that I am a moody human being. That how I feel on Monday is going to be different than I feel on Wednesday. How I feel on Wednesday is going to be different than I feel on Friday. How I feel during Sunday afternoon nap as the Buccaneers destroy the Packers. How are you going to wear that jersey in here, bro? What's the matter with you? Can I have the elders of the church come forward? <laughs> Time for church discipline. How are you going to wear it? Hey, bro... Man, I had so much respect for you. It's gone. Just kidding. We love you. We love you. Just it's taking a little more of the Holy Spirit to love you today. That's okay. Your pious attitude walking in here. Where was I? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Follow the logic of the text, though. Right? Think, think about what's happening here in relation to God and us. We shift like the shadows. God does not shift like the shadows. So when it comes to your life and when it comes to dealing with the things in your life and specifically the things that are hard in your life. And listen, I know almost all of you and I know that there are things that whether or not it's right now, it's been recent. There are things in your life that are were hard. Some of you are just raising toddlers. It's hard. Some of you losing loved ones, it's hard. Some of you lost jobs, it's hard. Some of you, the job you're in is hard. And we could, like, we could talk about college tests. We could talk, we could, everybody has some things. And so it it matters to us who God is and how he relates to us in those. But follow the logic here. James says, God is not the cause of your trials and temptations because God isn't evil. He isn't tempted by evil. Nor does he tempt anyone with evil. Is there not a temptation when you're going through something to do what Job's friends did? Do you know who Job is? He was a character in the Old Testament who God allowed Satan to take everything away from him. And afflict him with disease. 
And Job's friends come and be like, dude, what did you do? You had to have done something wrong. And isn't it a temptation for us to think, what did I do to deserve this? Now, don't get me wrong. There may be some things that you make a choice and it costs you, right? In the Kuhn family, we tell our kids that those are called natural consequences. If you drink too much, get in your car and cause a problem, there will be natural consequences for that. So, yes, it's like if you procrastinate and don't do something and then you don't like something at work doesn't go right or something in your family doesn't go right or that's your fault. (laughs) Right. Well, I'm talking about I'm talking about the opposite. I'm talking about the things in your life where you look around and go, God, what did I what did I do to deserve that? What do you do with that? Right? Because God doesn't cause those things. And that's important because the very next part of that text says that God is not the cause of those things, but he's actually the giver of every good and perfect gift. But make no mistake that there are, there are broken parts of this life that happen to every one of us. And they are real. But God does not shift like we do. And as a matter of fact, it was by his own choice that he brought us into his family. And so we actually and listen, this is politically and culturally incorrect. And and this can get you canceled. I understand that. But listen to me. Are you tracking? We are capable of evil. Like we like. Regardless of what we've been told, we don't always do the right thing. We don't always do good things. In fact, sometimes we do bad things. Right? Like that list of things I read at the beginning, some of those are our fault. Like bullying people or taking advantage of people or, you know, we could, we could go on. So there is evil in this world, right? God often gets accused with this question, why, if God's so good, why is there so much evil? Right? God often gets accused of that question. But the reality is, is that um, God is good. We aren't. Right. Because on the same token, we don't want God to make me a robot either. I need my choice. And so we bring all of that baggage into this. But it is important because we have to get our categories right before we go back and talk about what to do. Right. Because if you walked in here thinking that most of the things in your in your life were God's fault and not yours or not the devil's, then our categories are out of sorts. Make, now, now, God does let things happen to you, but make no mistake, he was still there with Job, wasn't he? In fact, they have a great dialogue. If you want to do uh, some fun things in your scripture reading this week on your own, go read Job. Because Job, rightfully so, starts to feel sorry for himself, right? And he's like, God. And God just launches on him. Right? He's like, where were you when I hung the stars in the sky? You're like, point, point taken. Right. But then God blesses him back. But what we often miss in the story of Job is when God gives him everything back twice as much. How many of you know that that hole was still there from losing his kids? Right. That scar was still there from losing his wife, that the scars were still there. Life still happened. And so even though there was joy in front of him, those scars were still there. And so. It brings all of us into this moment to say, like, yeah, like, life is broken. 
Like this place is not all that it should be. And that theologically matters to us because what we do in that moment is we admit that we aren't who we're supposed to be. And that an answer has to come from somewhere else. I say all that to to make sure that, that we're on the same page in saying that humanity isn't the answer to all of humanity's problems. Because we're tempted to think that we are. And that's not an excuse, as James is going to say next week, to not be doers of the word, right? There's a lot of things that we are supposed to do as followers of Jesus. But they come out of that thesis we talked about last week, and they often happen through what we're about to talk about, which are the difficult circumstances of life. So we needed to lay that groundwork so that we can actually go through this, because what happens in our life a lot of times is that our sin creates problems. The society's sins create problems. And when sin conceives, or desire conceives, it gives birth eventually to death, or a death experience. Ultimately, sin kills. Ultimately, evil kills. And so whatever the various trials are happening... We come all this way, and I want you to write this down, okay? Because this is, this is important. God isn't our problem, okay? We just established that. God's not our problem. But listen, God is our solution. Does that make sense? God is not your problem, but he is your solution. Also something that you will not hear in the world, Right? God is not your problem. He is our solution. So here we go. I want to give you some things to take home today. Five strategies for when life is hard. Okay? Five strategies for when life is hard. Five strategies. Straight from the text. I can't dive into all this right now, but I want you to write them down. And I want to to get us to each of them. Draw your attention to a few things. Number one, celebrate the reason behind the trial. Celebrate the reason behind the trial. Look at verse 2. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, when you experience various trials. Verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. As a follower of Jesus, you have a different goal than the rest of the world. When you walk through trials and testing, whether it be in your marriage, whether it be at your school, whether it be in your home, whether it be wherever at work, whether it be in the public square, wherever you are, when you go through a trial, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, there is a goal. It is not simply a hard time. But in that hard time, though God is not your problem, he is always at work in your problem. So the goal is that you will eventually be made mature, right? That walking through difficult times will bring about through endurance. Any, anybody like to run? Any runners in the house? A few of you. God bless you. It is not me, right? We've talked about this before. I hate to run. If something's not chasing me, I don't want to run. All right. And if you're chasing me, I'm just going to hope that I have a little left in the tank. You know what I'm saying? I don't run, but I'm impressed by people who run, especially endurance runners. 
I mean, why on earth you would want to run 26 miles for no apparent reason other than that little thing they put around your neck at the end? I mean, kudos to you. <laughs> Not me. I'm like, if there's any other way for me to be in shape, let's do it, right? But why, what happens? Slowly over time, you, let me say it this way. You're not going to get out of bed tomorrow and run a marathon, right? People put in months of effort, slowly building small habits over time to eventually build up and work their way to where they can run 26 miles, right? You don't just wake up and run 26 miles. In the same way, you don't just wake up and do everything right as a Christian, right? Like there's things like your desires, right? That's what the scripture says. That we're drawn away by our own desires. Listen, you might be one of those people that when you got saved, you thought everything would be easier. And you found out real fast, oh, actually, things can actually get a lot more difficult, right? Because what God's asking you to do is be holy because he is holy. How many of you know If you're a parent, a spouse, if you have friends, if you are breathing, it's tough to be holy. (laughs) Thank you. It's tough to be holy. You know, when we talk about regen and we say hurts, habits and hang ups, and then I tell you that you have a hurt, habit and hang up, it's because we know you. Like all of us are in that place because we're all sinners. And you have to know that. You just have to know that. One of the great differences between Christianity and other religions is that there is a point to your pain. Even if you caused it. Even if you caused it. That God is within that working on you. Right? The way we talk about it is when your vision goes up and you fall in love with Jesus... The next thing that happens is your vision goes in because God comes into your life and begins to rearrange the furniture, right? He begins to change you and transform you into the image of Jesus. And that's uncomfortable. It's difficult. It hurts. It usually involves pain. It's an incredible struggle for Christians, many Christians, myself included, in that we live in this culture of immediacy, this culture of immediate results. I want it now. Give it to me now, right? If I want a hot pocket, I go microwave it so I can have it now until you bite that thing and it explodes in your mouth and your mouth is hot for like, is like burnt for like a week. Anybody, just me? Come on. Never had a hot pocket? Pizza roll? You're like, these are going to be so good. Too soon. <laughs> right? Like, why do we do that? Have you ever thought about why I can't just open said pizza roll? Let the steam go out. Wait one minute, people. One minute. I can't. I nibble the edges off. Got to. It's time. Ah, it's not time. Like, you ever thought why that happens to us? You ever thought why kids, doesn't matter how many times you tell them, they're going to burn their mouth on the, on the hot pocket. Why? Because as human beings, we are immediate, we, we want it and we want it now. It's just in us. And God is gracious enough to slow down and say, you can't have everything you want now. This is one of the great struggles in our secular moment because most of us have the means to get whatever we want now. 
And that is difficult in your discipleship journey. It's difficult in my discipleship journey. To have what we want. And you know, listen to how Andrew Root puts it. I love the, what he says here. He says, in a world of competition, power, and hatred, we live into a future, into the future by taking on the future's characteristics of being last, weak, and loving. In this way, we provide a world, listen to me, we provide a world that knows only certainty, immediacy, and domination with a vision of the future that encompasses faith, hope, and love, right? Like this is where our theology meets our practice. We love that scripture that says faith, hope, and love, but what does that mean tomorrow? It means that we paint a totally different picture of life. That isn't certain about everything. That doesn't need everything right away. That doesn't care to dominate somebody near me, but in fact seek their good. These are tangible differences. Made possible by the resurrection of Jesus who has been crucified in our place. Critically important. Critically important. So joy then isn't suggesting that you enjoy being persecuted or losing your job or getting sick or that any of those things are super fun. Joy is simply a calm delight that produces a gladness in Christ. And no matter what's happening, it is good to sing to the Lord. The end result of that, which is going to lead us into number two, is that we get to a place of lacking nothing. Right? That's what that text says. But I ultimately get to a place where I lack nothing, and that's strategy number two. Remind yourself of God's promise. Right? How, how many times when you walk through something difficult is the first thing on your mind, God is with me. He's producing maturity in me. I don't lack anything. I don't know about you, but that, that's not the first thing in my mind. It's not, because I'm a product of the culture that I find myself in. What's the problem? How do I fix it? And why isn't it fixed already? That's how we roll. And so God is gracious enough to make us slow down. This promise of completeness, lacking nothing. This is a nod to the Jewish concept of shalom, right? To be whole, to be complete, to have peace. If you are in peace then things are going to come and they're going to be hard but if you are at peace it's totally different and should be when we know the king of kings and the lord of lords and the holy spirit lives inside of you number three leads us straight to number three talk to god you're like that was anticlimactic <laughs> talk to god why why do i say that because in that same culture, we are prone to not talk to God, right? What, is it, what does it look like in a culture where you don't need God to talk to God at all times, to pray without ceasing? St. Augustine said it this way, prayer is the key that opens heaven. Think about that. Prayer is the key that opens heaven. The favors we ask descend upon us the very instant our prayers ascend to God. Because God is what we need. Prayer is the key to heaven. I love how Dallas Willard puts it. Because sometimes we struggle to pray. He says this. He says, the more we pray, 
the more we think to pray. And as we see the results of prayer, the responses of our Father to our requests, our confidence in God's power, spills over into the other areas of our life. How do I begin to see God working in my life at the times that are hard? You gotta pray. There's, we say this a lot, there's no shortcuts to this. If you do not talk to God, you will not feel like God is there. You just simply won't. What should I talk to God specifically about in my test or trial? Wisdom. Right? Look at, look at verse 5. It says, Now if any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person, lift up your voice and say, that person. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is after your maturity. He's after shaping you into who Jesus is. He's after making you into the image of his son. He's after what we talked about last week. That in all of his grace, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, verse 10 is still there. That you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. So he's fashioning you, shaping you into who you are supposed to be. And the reason that you shouldn't expect anything is bringing us full circle to where we were when we were talking about God. Look at verse 8. Being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. We're unstable. We are. And so super important that we think about When I am in my trial, God doesn't always remove the trial, but he is more than happy to join you in your trial. As a matter of fact, I I think it would be safe to say that most of the time he's not going to remove your trial, but he wants to be with you going through your trial. Think about famous passage, Psalm 23, verse 4 and 5 says, Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, I fear no evil, for you are with me. And then what? If he's with you in that, that hard place, what does he do with you in that hard place? Look what it says. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What do you do at family dinner when you have it? You sit down and you pray and you eat. I was going to say, somebody better say eat. I don't know what your family does at family dinner, but we eat a lot. When you're eating at family dinner, what is your posture? Calm delight, right? Relaxed. At peace. Right? You're not like looking over your shoulder, looking for danger. (laughs) Some of you might. Depending on your family and how much of practical jokers they are, that's possible. But you're at peace at the dinner table, right? This is the picture God paints that when he's with you in the middle of your trial, he's preparing a table right there in the presence of your enemy. God is after something different than oftentimes we are after. And I want to invite you to see that today. I want to invite you to look at your trial from a different perspective, to come have a seat at his table in the presence of your enemy. And ask him. Talk to him. About what it might be that he's doing in your life. Because 
as you sit at his table in the presence of your enemy, it leads you to number four, which is this, to believe that it's good to be small and then rejoice in that. This is a daily habit that you can practice of gratitude. To believe that it's good to be small. And I want you to see this in verse 9 to 11 because this is something that we read and I want to make sure we connect the dots that need to be connected. It says, let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. Okay? Um, For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. What's happening here? This is, in my opinion, for most of us sitting in this room, the most difficult call that God puts into our culture. The one that we find ourselves in right now. A culture of affluence. A culture of not needing God for my daily bread. Okay? Because, listen to this. Remember, this Messianic community was experiencing economic hardship and persecution. We aren't. A few of you in this room may be. But even, even for those of us that, that are, there are, there is access to help. In this moment, there wasn't for them. And so, as we come here, it was no small task for James to look at these people and say they need to rejoice in their humility. It was no small task. So what's the strategy then for those of us who aren't facing this? It's telling us to be generous. It's telling us to be generous. We know this intuitively, right? Verse 11 tells us that we're going to fade away and we can't take our stuff with us. But look at the juxtaposition there. The poor go up and the rich go down. Right? And, and it's in those acts of passing that both bring glory to God. Right? But it, it's important for us to know that that's not just theological there. What is it that makes the rich humble and the poor exalted? How does that passing happen? Talk to me. We be generous. What is it that helps the poor go from not being poor to being stable and the rich to be humbled in a good way? They give. They take care of the least of these, right? Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these, you actually do for me. Jesus says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, right? He came to set the captive free, right? We can begin to connect all these dots and recognize that what James is saying is if you are a person of affluence, which most of us are, we need to be generous. That we need to find the places spiritually and physically where we can make a difference in people's life. Does that make sense? So spiritually, if you are a seasoned Christian, you need to find somebody who's not and offer to do life with them. We call that mentoring or discipleship or whatever it is, and we're going to be offering you some ways to do that in the coming months. 
But that's the spiritual side. The physical economic side is if you aren't struggling. We need to be about making provision for people that are. And so we're also thinking about that too. And so you're going to hear about both of those things as we move forward. But what we want to do is what James is going to tell us next week. We want to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. We don't want to like put a bunch of money into a building and just go enjoy it. You tracking with me? It would be foolish for us to go put a bunch of money into a building so that we can meet spiritual needs while ignoring physical needs. Listen, there's a crisis happening in the, home, in, a, in the homeless community in our neighborhoods. An absolute crisis. And I was at a meeting just two weeks ago. And the biggest need is for us to figure out some more housing for homeless folks that want to get off the street and build their life. Some of you are sitting in this room and I know you need that. And so I'm, I haven't figured it out yet because I'm going to do what this text says to do. We're going to talk to God about it. But I do believe that the miracle's in the house. I do believe that one of you, God's given you the answer. And that there is a way for us to be, to do for one what we wish we could do for everybody. Does that make sense? And so, it's important for us to recognize that the Bible is extremely real to our circumstances. That for us to experience the blessing of God and for those who are not being blessed to experience blessing, there has to be, there has to be a movement and God's inviting us to that. So let me bring us to the fifth one. Number five, to meditate on the reward. With all that being said, verse 12 tells us that blessed is the one who endures trials. Blessed is the one who endures trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. You know, our ultimate hope is that at the end of it all, God will meet us in that place that we all long to see him face to face. Amen? That all of the loved ones that you've lost... That all of the brokenness that you've experienced, that all the hurt that exists in the world, that God is actively right now bringing his kingdom on earth and will eventually make all things new. That is the hope of the Christian faith. That all of this is working towards the culmination of Jesus making things new. And I want to land in that place because it's important for us to come into that spot where we recognize that all of this does have a point. <laughs> that whatever you're walking through right now, whatever your friends are walking through, whatever your family's walking through, whatever it is that you find yourself in front of, it isn't pointless. Right? Solomon said of the things of this world, meaningless, meaningless, everything's meaningless. Until you meet Jesus. And then it's not. Amen? And so, as the band comes up, I'm going to shift gears. I just, I just want to end with a song today. And uh, if you are struggling, we would love to pray with you. Jerome's in the back. I'll be up front. Some of our other elders are around. Grab somebody. We would love to pray with you. 
If one of our elders can lead you in communion, if that's what you need today to, to meet with Jesus, we would love to do that and be a part of that for you. Um, if you need to leave, that's fine. Whatever, whatever it is, wherever you are, I want to invite you just as we sing this song, a strategic song for you to think through what it looks like to begin to walk with Jesus in those trials. Why don't you stand with me? And let's sing this out together, but, but I want to invite you not to just sing, but to pray, to talk to the Lord and uh, invite him into this place with you that you would ultimately come have a seat at his table today. Amen. So let's pray together. Let's sing together. Let's meet with the Lord in this time of response.